Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are here with us. We thank you that you are not static, you are not passive, waiting for us to move, but you are on the move already. And you want to bring us to what you are doing. We thank you, Lord, that you know what the future is. And you're never caught by surprise. And we thank you, Lord, that right now, even at this moment, you are active in our body and in us as individuals to bring us into what you have in the future for this world. Thank you, Lord, that you are always on time. And so we ask you that you speak to us today. Unless you give us revelation, unless you are the one who's speaking, all we'll be hearing is blah, blah, blah. And so we ask you that you will really speak to us and give us true knowledge that comes from your speaking and us hearing. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, for those of you who were here last week, uh, we were looking at Isaiah chapter 52. And we spoke about the fact that Isaiah was calling um, the nation of Israel or Judah to wake up to who they were, yeah? to wake up to who they were. The tragedy of Israel was that they had lost their, their sense of identity, who they were. They had taken their identity from the cues of the world around them, what looked impressive, and they tried to follow as best as they, can, as they could. Israel was, had lost its identity and it had lost its calling. And we spoke about that. And so when Isaiah chapter 52 begins, and we can look at it from verse 1, and I'm using the NASB, Awake, awake, put, clothe yourself in your strength, O Zion. Clothe yourself in your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For the uncircumcised and the unclean will no longer come into you. Shake yourself from the dust. Rise up, O captive Jerusalem. Loose yourself from the chains around your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing and you will be redeemed without money. And so what God was basically saying to the nation of Israel is this. You had sold your calling. You had sold your rights in favor of something that was inferior. It's, you sold something that was divine. You sold your anointing, your calling as priests to stand between the infinite resources of God and the needs of human beings of this world. You lost that position because of the fact that you followed other gods and you became like them. You know, the psalmist says that those who follow them are become like them. They have eyes that see, that do not see, ears that do not hear, mouths that do not speak. And Israel had become dumb, it had become blind, it had become deaf, lost its calling, lost its anointing, lost its divineness. And as a result of that, they were under captivity. And uh, Isaiah is reminding them of the fact that they had been sold into Egypt. They had been sold into Assyria, oppressed by the Assyrians. And they looked like nothing like what God had envisaged them to be. And what we have been looking at is the beginning of a series in which I believe God is restoring to the church who she is. Restoring to the church her jewels, her anointings, her supernatural, divine character and nature and calling um, in that. And so we looked at that, um, the loss of identity. And Isaiah is speaking um, a rebuke and encouragement at the same time. Because he's speaking as someone who knew Israel for who she was knew her better than she knew herself. He looked at her and knew her in re response or in, re in relation to her, her real identity, her real nature, and her real calling. He saw her in relation to how God saw her, which looked like nothing like what, how she saw herself. And so we looked at that, and in response to this loss of identity, loss of empowerment, loss of uh, anointing, God says to them, therefore, verse 6, my people shall know my name, therefore in the day that 
I am the one who is speaking. That's, he will know my voice. The Israel will know my name, my voice. Here I am and know my presence. I'm going to read that again. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in the day I am the one who is speaking. Here I am. And so, God is speaking to them about the restoration of the, 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 the knowledge of His name. The, not, the restoration of the hearing voice, hearing ear, the hearing spirit, to be able to hear voice, the voice of God in distinction from their own voices, from the distinction of other pleasant voices. And the third thing is that the, God will restore to them the knowledge of His presence. Yeah? His name, His voice, or His word, and His presence. These are the three things that are the treasure of the church. Not just of VCF, but of the church of Jesus Christ. I believe that as a, as a church, God is restoring these treasures back to the church. And there is something that Isaiah is saying that resonates with me. I'm not sure whether it resonates with you. He's looking at, at Israel and he says, I see that over the, over the course of history, there have been things in your foundations that are missing. Or perhaps they have been lost or, or perhaps sold. And what he was saying is that these three things have a lot to do with the precious things that God's wanting to release. And last week, we spoke about the fact that in that, in that God was actually restoring His name. Yeah? And we spoke about the fact that when God says, I'm going to, you will know my name, He's talking about not just the fact that he, Israel will know His character or that His attributes, what His attributes are. What Isaiah was saying is this, if when God says, you will know my name, what he really means is according to the, ancient, the, the understanding of the ancient Near East, no God would reveal his name to his people. The names of gods were secret. So that when Moses is confronted by God and God says, I'm going to send you to, the, to my people, and you're going to speak to the elders of Israel. Moses says, I have no credibility. My last interaction with Israel was that I murdered somebody, and they chased me off. And so, what is my credibility? And so, if they ask me, what is his name? What is, who has, that God has spoken to, to you, but what is his name? I have to give them an answer. I have to tell them that this God revealed himself to me. That this God disclosed himself to me. This God gave me an in with him. Because nobody can know the name of God, the names of God. You cannot know. You see, the name of God is not just a name like John or Bill or whatever or Akao, you know. He, the, the name of God is a secret, the secret substance of God, the secret heart and the, name, the, the nature of God. The, 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 when God reveals His name, He discloses who He is to you. Israel was asking Moses, did God do that? Did He do that with you? Because He doesn't do it with anybody. Nobody knows His name. Of course, everybody knows what He's called. He was called Elohim. People had names for him. But when, when you're talking about name, you're not talking about that kind of name. You're talking about his inner heart, his inner secrets, his inner power. Amen? And so when, when, when uh, Isaiah is saying to Israel, you will know, in that day you will know my name, what he means is that you will have a relationship with God in which God discloses his power to you. He discloses the secrets of who he is. To you. He brings you in to the fellowship of the Godhead, so to speak. Now, of course, this is Old Testament, so many, there's, we have layers of New Testament knowledge that we are imposing upon it, but that's, that's basically it. What God was saying to Moses is this, you will know me, and you will call, you will say, I am. When they're asking, so what, did he, what, did he, what did he say to you? Did he, what is that his name was? They were not asking What's God's name? They knew what his name was. It was Elohim. They called him Elohim already. That's, not, that's, not, that's no big shakes. The point that they were making is this. Did this God actually reveal himself to you? 
Are you in on Him or not? Because if you're in on Him, we can follow you because you are connected with His power and with with His, His, His Word. If you are not, then you're just like any man. And so Moses understood when he said, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob has called me and talked to me and told me, I'm going to bring you out so that you can worship God in the wilderness. Moses understood that he needed the credibility. He needed the credibility of God's backing. And the children of Israel were basically saying, not what is his name, but they were saying, did he reveal himself to you or not? Now, when Isaiah says, my people will know my name in that day, he's saying, my people will not just know things about God or doctrines about God or, or, or attributes of God. He's saying, my people will enter into that secret space of encounter with God, in which that encounter will change you completely. Nobody can stand before God or see God and live. That's why the Puritan said, then let me see God and die. Because that's exactly what it required. Did you survive being encountered by God? Now, if you have a God that God is like your daddy God and he's, he's casual and he's just any, any, any person, and you don't have a picture of God as one who's like a, a, a raging fire that's infinitely powerful and who loves you to that extent, then you will have no paradigm for what we are talking about. You will think that God's power and His greatness is, is antithetical to His love because you only know love in the lovey-dovey way. And so what God was saying to the children of Israel is that, no, no, you're not going to know God, know me, like a lovey-dovey, like, a, like some, some duck or like some soft toy. You would like that, because you would prescribe that kind of God for yourself because you do it already. But you will know me as the raging fire whose love for you is like a raging fire who will fight for you, who will redeem you and forgive you. Amen? You, if you don't know that kind of love, you don't know the love of God yet. You know lovey-dovey, you know the human love, but you do not know the love of one who could slay you and should slay you and me, but who loves you. If you know that kind of God, you will be secure in that God. Amen? And so when, you forgive me those of you who were here last week, I'm, I'm going over, over the covered ground. So when God says, in, the, in this restoration, the first thing that's going to happen is that you will know my name. He's saying you will know the, a certain kind of knowledge of me that can only come by encounter. You can only know me by encounter. That's a different kind. It's, it's knowledge of the first order. What we have usually is a, a second order knowledge that comes from our research or reading the Bible or reading books or hearing from other people. That's a knowledge that we can gather for ourselves. Right? That's a second order uh, knowledge. What, what um, Isaiah is speaking about is not that. He's speaking about the first order knowledge. The knowledge that came to you because one, someone hit you with it. And so Isaiah is saying, my people will be hit by me. That's what we call apodixis. Not the kind of faith that, that there's a mental believing or, or constructing things based upon our our, our theological knowledge, but apodixis has to do with something that is compelling. Boom! You got, you got in contact with it. You were encountered by it. Amen? And so we're talking about that. Today I'd like to talk further so that we can understand what does it mean to be knowing His name. It's really important because to know His name that concept continues into the New Testament when Jesus speaks about the fact that we will be in His name, in Him. That in my name, you will cast out demons. In my name, you will heal the sick. In my name, you will um, forgive others. In my name, these things will happen. So, being in His name is very important, don't you think? 
Now, I know we all say, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, and we use that. But we sometimes use that name like a talisman. You know what I mean? Like a magical word, hope that, hoping that, in the name of Jesus, and we, we ratchet up our voice and hoping that that will just do it to the devil, you know? That's not what in the name of Jesus means. In the name of Jesus means you have to be in. You have to die in. If you're not in, then you don't know, you don't have that encounter, that encounter with, with Jesus. In many ways, when Jesus talks about this in John, in the gospel, he's, he's constantly in me, in me, you, me, you and me, you in me, you in me, I in you, you in me, in me, in me, in me. Amen? John chapter 15, the, in, the, in the vine, in the... What does it mean? What does it mean? In, in, in God, what does it mean? It means that when we are, we are immersed into God, we lose our life. We lose our life. Or else you, you, you're using the name of Jesus, but we can very well tell whether you, ha- you, ha- you have that name of Jesus or not. There's a hymn that says, take the name of Jesus with you, child of sorrow and of woe. He will with comfort greet you or, or something. Does anybody know that song? All right, never mind. He's talking about carrying the name, being in the name. When God gives us his name, he envelopes us with himself. But it will kill you. It will cause you to experience the death of the Lord Jesus for every other agenda that you have. So that your knowledge of God and my knowledge of God and and how we proceed from that place comes from a place in which you died. No one can see the face of God and live. Therefore, let me see the face of God and die. And that's what he means. A person carries a spiritual authority not just in name, not not just positionally, but kinetically, yeah? But in actual, in actual action, when he or she has entered into his name and that his name covers every other name. Amen? I want to talk a little bit about that, but today I would just like to talk about it because I feel that God is, has a word for some of us who may be going through a hard time. And so if you can turn with me to one passage of scripture which is in 1 Samuel. And this has to do with Hannah. Are you ready? 1 Samuel chapter 1. Verse 1. Now there was a certain man from Ramathaim, Zophim, from the hill country of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jer- Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, and Ephraimite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Panina. And Panina had children, but Hannah had no children. I, now this man would go up to his city, from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh, or Shiloh, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests to the Lord there. And when the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had closed the womb. Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. It happened year after year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her. So she wept, Hannah wept, and would not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep, and why do you not eat, and why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? And Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorposts of the temple of the Lord. She, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she made a vow. And there's a shift that takes place there in verse 11. And said, O Lord, O host, 
If you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come to his head. So that's the death, right? That's the death. She says she's, she's, she's praying for a son, and at a certain point, she goes beyond her own need for a son, for her own shame to be removed, and she gives it to God. Something happens in that process of prayer, in that encounter with God. Yeah? And he becomes a Nazarite. Now it came about, as she continued praying before the Lord, that Eli was watching her mouth. Yeah? Not watching her heart, but watching her mouth. As for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart. So Eli was watching her mouth, but her mouth was not really speaking. The speaking was actually happening in her heart. And Eli looked at her mouth. As for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart. Only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. So Eli thought she was drunk, you see. <laughs> she looked like a pretty mess, I'm sure. She must have looked a mess. Then Eli said to her, How long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from you. He did not have discernment. But Hannah replied, No, my Lord, I am a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant as a worthless woman or a woman of Belial, for I have spoken until now out of my great concern and provocation. So she's spoken out of a great concern and provocation. Because she was being irritated, she's been provoked, she's being oppressed, she's being uh, uh, needled by Panina, who was bent at destroying her, actually, because she was a competitor. Do not consider your maidservant as a worthless woman. Verse 17, Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked of him. And she said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. There's two different kinds of, may I say, Christianity. One is the Panina kind of Christianity, in which everything's fine. In fact, she can say she's blessed. Don't you think? She's blessed. And there's the Hannah, in which she doesn't seem so blessed. And she has an issue. The issue is that Lord has made her barren. I want to say this especially, and, and I came to this passage because I felt the Lord led me to this, because I had a sense that there are some of us who are suffering from deprivation of some sort. You've been praying for something, for something to happen. It hasn't happened. You're in a situation that is not all right. It's not all right. You're not blessed in the same way that others seem to be blessed. And because of that, there's an extreme despondency and, and provocation that has arisen in you. What I believe the Lord wants to speak to us today is about the fact that often it's from these places that God encounters us, calls us, gives us a name, and restores us, and does more. Amen? But it's very easy to think that Christianity is of the panina type, the, the blessed type. The kind of Christianity in which everything's fine. You manage your household well, you're fine, you're in good mental health, great. It's very easy to be a Christian who look, comes across to God as someone who will help to maintain their good. St. Ignatius said, the biggest enemy of the good, with a capital G, is the good with a small g. That's the biggest enemy. And most of the time we are fighting against not bad things, but what seem like good things. And may I, perhaps a little unfairly, characterize Panina as a kind of Christianity in which God is brought about to surround and help facilitate the good life. The good life. 
the good life that we want for ourselves. You see, the thing is this. God is a wonderful God. He's a, a, a God of tremendous blessing. He provides for us financially. He provides for us healing. He provides for us many, many good things. That's because He loves us. Pure and simple. He doesn't do it because of doctrine. He doesn't do it just, be, just out of principle. He does it because He loves us. In the overabundance of His love, He blesses us. Now, it's, it's easy for us as Christians to come to God with the same kind of position of heart in which we think of God as, and think of prayer as a way in which God can help to maintain this blessed state. But the center of it all is self. This blessing sort of, sort, sort of kind of Christianity is something that I'm sure you've heard about and you've heard it pilloried and criticized and rebuked many, many, many times. I don't even want to mention preachers who, the names of preachers that you well know and probably you have mentioned before. But I want to put it to you that actually, there is a way in which we can be like that as well. Because we have an ideal shape of what a good life is, according to our dreams. According to our dreams. And so Panina, I want to suggest, represents a certain kind of life in which everything being okay, financially okay, educationally okay, career-wise okay, family, everything, everything fine, everything fine, is an ideal that can sometimes be conflated or confused with what God has for us. I'm not about to say that God has for us a messy life or a hopeless life or a, good, or, or a, a, a bad life. I'm not about to say that. Actually, in the end, Hannah had four children in the end, not just one. You'll see this in chapter 2. No, God is a God who blesses, but there is a difference between the blessing kind of life, the way in which we use it today, and the beatific life, the blessed are those who are kind of life, the divine blessing. So I want to, I want to put it to you that there could be these two things. Hannah as a result of her prayers, began to shift the center of gravity of her prayer from herself and her own shame to the purposes of God. So that her concerns became less herself, but the concerns that God had put upon her, just like He had put upon Moses. We often come to God with our own problems, with our own issues, and God changes it, and He puts His issues upon us, and we are freed up from our own. That's the beatific vision. Blessed are those who are hunger and thirst after righteousness. Okay? As, a, as, as opposed to the, what we call the blessed life. Okay? And so I want to put it to you that actually, when God says, you will know my name, He's bringing us into an encounter. But a lot of times the encounter begins with a certain sense of deprivation that we had. Things are not alright. And you may be t today here in church and you feel, my life is not blessed. I'm, I'm hopeless. I'm, I'm, hor I'm feeling horrible. I'm feeling stretched out, stressed out. And I'm calling out of my deprivation. And what God does is that He moves us from that place to a place that Hannah occupied. Okay, let's have a look at this as we look into chapter 1. Elkanah is an interesting person, right? Don't you think? He's, he's Penina and uh, Hannah's husband. So Hannah is complaining, complaining, complaining. Complaining, always complaining. I think Elkanah, he got tired of the whole thing. And Elkanah is like, just like many husbands, right? Why are you complaining? Look, I give you the best. You're my favorite one, you know? I, I love you more than Penina. Don't tell her that. But even, even when, when they go up to prayer and go up to the sacrifice, he says, I'll give you double what I give to Penina. And Elkanah, out of his own kindness, out of his goodness, thinks that his own goodness is enough for Sahana. It's not enough. A lot of times we as Christians think that our kindness and our goodness and our, and, our, and our nice speaking is good enough for everybody. That's an insult. 
Elkanah is the one who's bringing Hannah back away from the real issues to the smaller issues. Elkanah wants to make Hannah think that it's, it's just about, about his favor upon her. I love you more. Hey, I choose you over that person. Don't tell her. But you are favored. And Hannah's come to a point where there's favor, smaver. Take it, take your favor. I have a bigger issue that I'm concerned about. And Elkanah's thinking, you are a pest. You are making my life miserable. Because you're constantly bringing up this thing about not having a son. I know you're blaming me. And Hannah's holding it in there. And she doesn't fully understand why she's so distraught. But she's provoked. And the provocation gives you a clue. You see, what's happening is Panina is saying, I'm better. I'm, I'm more favored. You're not more favored. I'm more favored because I have, I have children. You don't have children. I have children. The Midrash is very interesting. They, 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 one, one, of the, one of the rabbis said, tells these stories about how um, Panina came to her and says, Oh, have you given your second lunch to your children? Oh, you don't have any. Oh. And that's how she provoked her. Yeah, that's all Midrashim. Um, but I just wonder whether we, we experience that. I would say to you that it is often through times in which we are feeling very, very unsettled, unhappy about things, that God begins to draw us into an encounter with Him and gives us a calling that frees us up from ourselves. If you are in that situation, I really believe that God is actually wanting to do it because He wants to give us abundance in adversity. Let's, let's, let's move on. Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly because the Lord had closed her womb. What do you do when there's no comfort because the Lord is the one who's done, who's done it? And so Hannah's thinking, I mean, I, I can't fight God. What can I do? And yet, at the same time, there's enough in her to say, this still not, I'm not still settled. Even if it's God, there must be something more than that, yeah? And so Elkanah you know, tries to pacify her. Why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Verse 9, Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. And Eli, the priest, was sitting against the seat at the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. And she's greatly distressed. She's greatly distressed. And she prays to the Lord and wept bitterly. Okay, let's have a look at this. Eli is looking at her. She doesn't look good. Yeah? Sees her mouth moving. Sees the bitter tears that are going on. She looks a mess. Didn't you think so? You know, nowadays, we have a lot of interest in extreme excellence. Extreme excellence. We like to talk about people who are really excellent. And how they become excellent is that they practice like crazy. Their work ethic is not like other people's work ethic. They work hard. They are sweating it out. They do extreme measures to get that level of excellence. And we lionize those people, don't you think? Whether it is in business or in sport or in any kind of art and all that. We talk about these people very favorably, don't you think? We lionize these great athletes or actors or, or, or scientists or people who, are, who do great things. And we talk about, and I think we enjoy talking about, how hard they work. How they work up at 3.50 in the morning and they go practice and, 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 they, and they do the work and their work ethic is tremendous. And they sweat it out and they are just like amazing. Don't you think? Yeah? We talk about these things like... We... I've come to a conclusion about that. 
we are conflicted actually. We like that. That kind of messy, kind of like extreme measures, extreme measures. In fact, the more extreme those measures are, the more we, we talk it up, don't you think? I mean, I do. When my kids were in swimming, I, 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 I savor the kind of pain they go through. Not that I enjoy that they go through pain. But I savor the fact that my, my daughters are heroic enough to be able to do that. And when people ask me about, about how, how, how they became successful in these things, I tell them how hard they worked. Extreme. In fact, when I describe it, I want to describe it to, that, to other people about how, how much more extreme than what's rationally possible they are. We lionize them. Amen? But there's another part of us in our culture that is actually antithetical to them. And that is, we want things to be cool as well. We want things to be cool. We want things to be in such a way they are not extreme. We want it to be within a certain framework of niceties and comfort and balance and non-striving and non-mentally uh, exacting. We like it. In fact, we criticize people who don't live a neat and sane world, world, life. We actually criticize people and think that they have mental issues. They have mental health problems and we say that they are obsessive-compulsive, perhaps, when they are like that. I would say we are conflicted because we like to talk in the theoretical, the hypothetical about how people take extreme measures but when we actually see that happening and they have not got that success yet, we judge them and say, you are actually having mental health issues. You're obsessive compulsive. We can't have it both ways. And may I suggest to you that the hunger for God and the restoration of, 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 of divine things is going to be messy. It's not going to be pretty. And the very ones that are lionizing these things will say, you have mental health issues. And so with Hannah as well, she could see that there was something that was really missing and it was not satisfying that the mental health issues people were, were, were criticizing her for her drunkenness. That she was extreme. I would put it to you that actually... Hannah was the messy kind of person that we are all supposed to be in our prayer, in our worship, in the way we live our life. That this, Hannah was the person who was, I don't know how people today will, will, will judge her mental health. I don't know. And maybe she was a bit crazy. But at the end of the day, when the story is told, it's not that she's crazy. But she got something. And what came out of her saved Israel. Was divine. Not Panina-like. Not another four kids who are the same. Same mass of protoplasm just like everybody else. Not that. Nobody talks about Panina. That Panina's children are not talked about in the Bible. But Samuel is. But the point is this. There is something about Hannah that we are averse to. We're a nuisance. It messes things up. Just like blind, blind Bartimaeus messes up the whole thing. Shouts out in doing, doing the worship. Does all this kind of stuff. It is only after the miracle happens that we say, Ah, oh, yeah, good of Good on you, Bartimaeus. He's calling for you, old chap. Fine. But while they're in it, judgment is coming upon them by people like us. By people like us. Because people like us feel uncomfortable. I've never heard the, the word uncomfortable said so many times as when I came to America. I'm uncomfortable with this. I'm uncomfortable with that. 
You're striving. You're not balanced. You're not this. You're not that. You all have mental, mental, mental health problems. C.S. Lewis said there's going to come a time in which arbitrary people in white coats will, will determine what's mentally, man, mentally sober and what's mentally ill. There's a way in which Hannah was not cool. And because of that, may I say, I think we should not be cool Christians. We should try our best. Try our best, be as cool. But there comes a time in which divine goes past cool. And you can sometimes be an irritant to other people because of that. You pray too loud. You pray too passionately. You repeat yourself all the time. You don't you don't, you're not aware of other people. Those things are not values in and of themselves. But there's some times in which when there's a deep hunger for something more and there's the Holy Spirit working in you to make you feel uncomfortable about things or provoked, that you will actually feel decidedly messed up and everybody else will think you're messed up. But I want to say that even in that, be careful of a certain part in each one of us that doesn't feel comfortable when things break out. Doesn't feel comfortable when you freak out. And when you freak out, it could be that you're just on the road to being healed or being restored to something really, really precious. And I feel that there are ways in which God was bringing Hannah not just into her own space of her own uh, discomfort or uh, disadvantaged situation, but into the, the burden of God's heart, which was that Israel had lost their identity. They had gone after other idols and had followed other gods. And because of that, they had lost their special anointing. They had lost their God. And there's something that happens as we pray where there's a certain part in which nobody can understand what you're, you're going through. So I just want to say to some of us, you may be going through things alone. Your children may think you're nuts. Your relatives, your close friends may think you're nuts. It's happened to Job. It's happened to David. You know, one of the be most beautiful and well-formed psalms was Psalm 34. Beautiful in its structure and in its poetry and its insight. But it was written when, D when David pretended to be mad among the Philistines. And we can sometimes be brought to that. And nobody will understand you. Because you're carrying a burden. Have you been with somebody who's carrying a weighty burden? Not just for themselves, but for things in the world. For the lost. Have you ever been with them? I have. I have. I judged that person severely because that person never smiled never laughed every time i saw that person i used to tell my friends here comes the wet blanket so you come always frowning always frowning all that and i told that person i think you need to be delivered of a spirit of depression man maybe he did but he was carrying something of greater weight than I was. I was the Alcana. I just wanted cool. I wanted, I was watching his mouth, uh, not his heart. And he came to a point where he couldn't speak to anybody in our church because nobody would want to listen to him. Every time he came, the pews would be, would just sort of like the parting of the Red Sea. 
Everybody would, would, go, would go away from him. And every time he would pray, he would pray for the restoration of the church. Pray for the restoration of the church. Pray for the rest restoration of church. And I remember talking to him, you need prayer. Because you need deliverance from, deliver from, from the spirit of depression. And I so regretted it. Because suddenly, there was a meeting in which a prophet came to our church. And he was a well-known prophet. If I mention his name, you will, many of you will know his name. And he came to, and he said, call him out. He says, you have been carrying a burden for the church and for the nation for many years. And leaders in the church, myself included, have rebuked you and have not discerned properly what you are carrying. And as a result of that, the Holy Spirit moved. When he said that, suddenly, you know, there's hundreds of us, a spirit of intercession came upon us and the whole church just began weeping, not because of regret of what, how we treated him, but because the, the burden that he had from the Lord came upon all of us and we had not been open to it because we were cool. And as that happened, the Lord began to move. And after that, it was hours, it was just hours, and that's another messy part. Hours, we were together praying past midnight. It was just hours and hours. And we, the Lord, by His Spirit, would not let us go until He released us. And it was only after midnight that He released us. And something changed in our church completely. Miracles began to flow. Everyone's heart changed and all that. We are never cool again. Never, never on that cool, that rubbish. That cool rubbish. Never into that. And he became a leader to us of intercession. After that, I saw him smile slightly. I think sometimes as a church, we can be playing tiddlywinks because we are concerned about things that are less of important than things that are very, very important. We are a bit like Eli who watches the mouth but not the heart. And perhaps that's been happening to you. Perhaps you have been feeling very depressed. And yes, you may have mental issues as well. All that. But I want to put it to you that God is bringing you to an encounter with Him. The last thing you want to do is to validate the less than okay situations and feel that that's your, that's your lot. No. God is travailing to bring something. Your husband or your wife has not come to the Lord. The person that, is, that you are praying for has not come to the Lord. And it irks you. It burdens you. And you dare not bring it up in daily prayer because you brought it up a thousand times already. And you dare not bring it one thousand once a time because of the fact that it's just not cool to be repetitive. I want to say, advocate for that person. Don't be cool. Don't be cool. Be repetitive. And, that, and what happened was Hannah came to a point in which she died to herself. And it, all the blubber came out. All the tears came out. All the misunderstanding came out. All of that came out because of the fact that there was something that was real that was going on. Amen? I had a professor who, 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 who was a professor in English, and uh, he said, when I do vivas, do you know what vivas are? Vivas? Oral examinations. So what happens is that uh, at the end of all the exams and the fin final years in the British system, you get a chance, if you, if you score well enough, maybe five or, five or six people will get a viva. That means they appear before a panel of professors and they will judge you and they will ask you questions and they will kind of try to slaughter you. And if you survive it, you get your first class honors. And one of the professors says, told me, 
You know what I look for in people who are, who are, who are doing criticism in, in English literature? I look for when they, they can't express themselves in a viva that they, they, are like, they are just struggling for words because something important has been detected by them. They, they found something important and that thing is so important that they can't put it into words. I look out for that in a viva. Yeah. Not, the thi- not the things that are well articulated, but I look out for these things in a viva. <laughs> Praise God. I think God is actually bringing up the deep concern for the church, that the church is not actually in good shape. The church actually has been given all the strength and the beautiful garments. He says, put on your beautiful garments. And God wants to encounter each one of us personally. He wants to encounter personally that every one of us will have an encounter with God that will cause us to know His name. Amen? Make space for it. Make space for it. Because God is going to empower us with His power. People will come into the, into the congregation and they will find that different people have a word in season for them. Very accurate. Each one, God can use every one of them. You don't need a, 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 a prime ministry team um, because everyone will be able to pray. Isn't that amazing? You know, there was a time in our church many years ago when that was happening. I remember we, we used to have uh, conferences. Uh, the Connection used to have conferences and we would have like 70 people come in, interns, pastors, and all that. And what we would do is we would have a weekend, and then after the weekend, they would stay on for worship. And when they stayed on for worship, they would all get prayer from people in the church. And I, was, I would always get feedback from some of these pastors and says, wow, your church really hears from God. I got prayed for by somebody I don't even know, I don't even recognize it. And he gave me a word from the Lord. He gave me a word from the Lord. He gave me a word from the Lord. It happened, happened a lot. This is... This is a, a while ago, but I believe I've seen a little bit of it. I've seen a, a, little, a little taste of what God can do for all of us. Amen? Because God wants to reveal himself to us. As we get ready for the conference, those of us who are coming, and those of us who won't be able to make it, the Lord has the same blessing for you, that he is restoring the church. But there is a way in which Hannah is perhaps where many of us are in our spiritual life. Let's finish this, finish this off and we'll close in prayer. She, he comes and something rises in Hannah. She's not intimidated by him. As for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart. Verse 13, only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. So Eli thought she was drunk. Then Eli said to her, How long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah replied, No, my Lord, I am a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my heart before the Lord. Who's Hannah to say, No, my Lord? Who who does she think she is? But her prayer brought her to death, where she didn't care what anybody thought of of her anymore. And she didn't even want Samuel for herself. She was brought into a different realm. And she got freed up from what intimidation Eli would, would give. Do not consider your maidservant as a worthless woman. Wow, that's pretty bold. That's the boldness that doesn't, that doesn't come from just like, I'm going to show my ego. I'm giving you attitude. No, that's not that. That's not. That's the human way of doing it. I got attitude. Blah, blah to you. No. It's like a humility that came from death. She's firm in that. And then she said, do not consider your maidservant as a, as, a, as a worthless woman, for I have spoken until now out of my great concern and provocation. I have spoken until now out of my provocation. There comes a time in which until now happens, that the provocation comes to an end. And in that, God encountered her. And you could see the result in her, her attitude towards Eli. And Eli later blesses her, but she says, until now, I was speaking my provocation. So there's that provocation. Comes. Go, go to God, go to God. 
If it means inconvenience, go for it. If it's uncomfortable, go for it. If people think you're stupid and you're just a a second-rate mind, go for it. If they think that you have mental issues, go for it. Because they will not die on the cross for you. They will not save you. They will give you some extra food maybe and and, and think that that their kindness is what you need. But you go to God. Join us for daily bread. Join us for... For, for corporate prayer. Join whatever, whatever is avail- available so that you can learn how to hear from God even more sharp, sharply than you do now. Give the time. I remember when God made me desperate for Him. All I knew is this, I got to pray in the Spirit. Pray in the Spirit. So, and when I was desperate because of, the, of my, my own depression and, and, and there were times in which I felt suicidal, I could not care what people thought about me. And I was a pastor, mind you, mind you. But I was afraid of every phone call that would come. Every, phone, every time the phone call came, I would have a heart attack, <laughs> so to speak. And so, all I knew is this. Someone told me, you lift up your soul continuously, Psalm 20, 25. Unto thee, O Lord, I lift up my soul. So I did. And all I could do is this. No words. I had no words to speak. I couldn't only pray in tongues. I just went like that. And my congregation saw me doing this. Just praying in tongues. If you'd seen me, you would have thought, this guy is a sad case. This is a real sad case. I don't care. Because for me, none of those people died for me on the cross. None of them, none of their kindnesses or their, their correctnesses could actually do anything for me. Jesus, Jesus, please, 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 please. It looked horrible. It looked horrible. I remember there was one person that I more recently saw. It says, do you remember, Michael, that those times I looked at you, I, I, I actually freaked out when I saw you. It went on for months and months and months. I couldn't get out of the room except for, for my duties. But the rest of the time, I paced up and down in the room. <laughs> Messy. If it takes that, go for it. Because whether you have mental issues or not, God will heal you. God will redeem you. And you'll be fine. Amen? Let us pray. Bless your name. If you like, just to help you as an aid to direct your heart towards God, just lift up your hands and point it towards God. Let your hand guide your eyes, your heart, towards not your problems, but towards God. Bless your name. We welcome you. You who sit upon the flood, the raging seas, founded the earth upon such watery and unstable places. We welcome you, Lord, to be the stability of our times and to deliver us into your presence. We want to know you. We want to know your name. We know there's more for us that you have. We know that we want to know you by eating you. Thank you, Lord. The most beautiful name in the world, Jesus. Jesus. But you became messy for us, Lord. So messy. 
inside and out. Your heart was in agony. You wanted the cup taken from you, but you obeyed anyway. We thank you right now. You kept walking, kept walking. And we ask right now in Jesus' name, you will deliver us from stopping our walk right now towards our calling, towards the beautiful name right now. Would you keep our walk going? Would you strengthen our walk towards our call right now in Jesus' name? You are the great king. We know the promise. We know how it ends. We know that we'll face death, but then we'll face the true resurrection. We'll face it. We'll come to it. And Lord, we dare, we dare, we dare to say to you, God, that we're frightened not to keep walking. We're frightened about what that might mean. So we pray right now for any of us who are Christians who have stopped walking all the way into obedience, that you would deliver us from that temptation right now. You would help us when we're afraid of what our children think, when we're afraid of what the church thinks. So we come to our great king, and we thank you that we will reflect your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise your name. So we commit ourselves to your hands. We invite you to continue to pour yourself upon us. In Jesus' name, amen.